is Matthew Raymond, and welcome to the first edition of Mutech Dialogues. This podcast miniseries aims to explore the conceptual arcs and creative rhythms that connect the diverse musicians, artists, and practitioners that make up the festival this year. For this episode, I sat down with Chloe Alexandra Thompson and Matthew Edwards, aka Aesthetic Stalemate, to talk about their sprawling AV project, Moray. In a way, Moray is a hard project to pin down. It has been through many distinct iterations, migrating from its first inception as a live installation to an interactive desktop game and album, and now to a fully immersive virtual reality experience. At the core of the project is a commitment to the power of abstraction and its generative and therapeutic possibilities, as well as an exploration of visual interference patterns and spatialized sound. In this conversation, we explore the potentials and limitations of world building, the unique affordances of digital tools, and the spiritual realities that make creative experience so meaningful. I hope you enjoy it. I, I wanted to start by just kind of asking about, about your relationship and, and how you came to start working together and what you drew you together as, as collaborators. Um, do you want me to start, Matt? Yeah. So Matt has been running an um, amazing project space um, in a former church called um, Church, but it's spelled with an X instead of a C. Um, and I'm sure he'll speak more about that in a minute. And he's been operating in the Portland experimental scene for, for years. Um, church just had its 10 year anniversary or 12. Ah, <laughs> this pandemic time warp. <laughs> yeah, so it's been, he's been a large part of things to do with music and the intersection of VR for over a decade in Portland. And I was living in Portland. Um, so we, we knew about each other and then we came to work at the same arts nonprofit, um, Open Signal. It's a public broadcasting station and new media arts center based in Portland, Oregon. Um, and he was working on an extended realities program with VR, employing um, green screen to make augmented reality. And I was the director of technology there. So we would always like run into each other in the halls and we knew of each other's work. And then I was like, I'm gonna pitch this thing to Mutag. Do you want to do something together? And it was totally like photocopier water cooler moment. <laughs> yeah. We're in this, like literally it was a photocopier moment of like, we know each other's work. Let's just connect. And it was really great to sort of start off that way because we we're both there so much and our outside time is often devoted to other things. So we were able to like integrate our like moments of discussion into the work. And of course we were then curated. Um, so we started working together on the project and Matt had mentioned being interested in working with moray patterns and optical illusions. And I was like, that's kind of actually what I do with sound is find those sort of moments of intersection and disruption, um, which is, I guess, classified as psychoacoustics and like really try to play off of those. And that's how this whole project kind of came to be originally. Yeah, was there something, Matt, that, uh, that when you kind of had this idea around uh, interest in optical illusions, was there something that had kind of inspired that? Can you kind of trace where that where that interest kind of emerged from? Yeah, it was uh, it was as simple as uh, you know the types of videos that come up in the margins when you're surfing YouTube. You know, there's a channel devoted to 
mathematics and there was a Japanese mathematician who was demonstrating different conventional moray pattern effects. And uh, it just is fascinating and it is visually very stimulating and kind of, uh, uh, you know, like why, why do our brains perceive these patterns this way? It's kind of, um, uh, no one has a great answer for that, but there's some sort of interference pattern that arises when you overlap certain uh, geometric shapes or sets of lines or dots arranged in a certain way. And so I just kind of had uh, bookmarked that and uh, thought this would be really fun to work with in a game engine in particular, because game engines are, you know, they're a world building tool and they are a 3D workspace where you can bring in different assets, 2D or 3D, and then you can animate them and make them interactive, speed up and slow down time, uh, make things audio reactive. So it just seemed like it could be a fun and fruitful sort of exploration. And it was as simple as that. Um, but I hadn't really acted on it yet. Chloe, as Chloe mentioned, um, you know, brought up the new tech prospect. And I instantly kind of realized, oh, Chloe's style, Chloe's aesthetic um, tends to be, you know, very distilled, uh, veering towards minimalism, uh, very austere in certain ways and monochromatic. So it, it really seemed like the time and the place and the way to, to do that exploration. And Chloe agreed. And I think the benefit that we had uh, starting things out at OpenSignal was it's a broadcast television studio, right? So we had all these great resources, um, you know, just at our disposal in the sense that we were there on campus uh, on a weekly basis. And um, they have a green screen, a couple green screen studios, a big green screen cyclorama, uh, various cameras that are just installed within the studios. And so we, we were able to put together what must have been a, a pretty compelling uh, sort of sample of like what this project could look like. Um, I mocked some things up in Unity and we did a little filming on green screen and we sort of produced a video that um, was mixed reality in nature is one, one term you could use. Basically we filmed Chloe on the green screen and we had the virtual uh, environment sort of around her. Um, and Chloe actually brought some equipment onto site and was, um, you know, producing sounds. So it began as a bit of an experiment um, along those lines. And of course, we were really um, ecstatic when uh, Mutex said that, you know, invited us to come perform at the festival. And that was in 20... Help me out, Chloe. Eighteen. Well, I think we knew about it at the. It was either the end of twenty eighteen or early yeah. twenty nineteen, and then we performed in twenty nineteen. And we also showed the work at the Portland Art Museum has the Witzel Auditorium, so we did a version of it there as well, um, which was just such a beautiful space, really resonant. 
Um, and, and that was, of course, a different kind of iteration of the project, um, more of a work in progress, um, but its own, like, um, I think something as collaborators, like I tend to iterate and things are very site specific, or if I see a visual, I'm going to respond to it differently than what I've sort of passed over as the inf information to the visual. And I know that over the years, Matt and I have had differing opinions on that. And I feel like now we're in a really good place of kind of knowing what to expect because we've gotten to have this really fruitful collaboration for so long. Yeah, I want to I want to go a little deeper into what that collaborative process really looks like in a kind of nuts and bolts sort of way. You mentioned kind of responding to visual feedback and and then having sound that, you know, is kind of inputting and uh, how 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 do you work together and and what does that look like in terms of is it kind of like sessions together is it sending files back and forth a mixture like these kinds of very kind of mundane processes yeah so we also did somewhat of like a i guess we kind of made a residency on the weekends because sure. um, we were able to use the space and we used this like um kind of concrete room auxiliary space for a while I think we were doing like 10 hour days in there at some point. Um, I remember I found like the brown note um, <laughs> accidentally and I just had it running through the subs and we both started feeling awful. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, this is audio programming in real time with people. Um, sorry, Matt. Um, <laughs> so we, we were really building things together and he'd be working on some totally separate task, like more technical nature. And I'd be working on something and then we'd kind of come together and actually flow with it. And um, now it's more, it's remote. And so we'll have work sessions on Zoom where we're doing something kind of similar. Um, but oftentimes like in the beginning, I would be like, hey, here's some audio. How is this for you? And he'd be like, that makes me think of this. And then he'd send it back. And I'm like, well, now that makes me think of this other thing and I'm changing everything. <laughs> he'd be like, but no, it's for the one thing. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He's, he's like, I think I like the original better. And so there was a lot of this sort of like, not even tension, just like a, a differing of opinions. And so the project has really iterated um, for each kind of discrete showing or event or kind of time locked snippet we have um, many more times in a way, if that makes sense. Um, does that feel accurate to yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, decision-making among Chloe and I has been pretty streamlined the whole process through. And I think for both of us, you know, we maybe have one or two other things in our life or in our career that's been this long form uh, of a, you know, developmental process. And so it's been very iterative. It's had a lot of uh, support from its conception. And I think we've produced a couple iterations of the project that were that, that depth uh, does come across like you know experiencing the content that this is a work of uh, you know much much labor and and uh, a lot of 
a lot of vision and a lot of care. Um, and I think that, uh, Chloe, yeah, our collaboration has been just pretty easy and joyous. It's, uh, I think this project is more, more playful, more purely abstract than a lot of the work that we otherwise engage with. And I think that's been a little bit of a mental vacation for us uh, throughout these past three years, which have presented many challenges for, for most people. Um, but yeah, I just uh, haven't, haven't had much of an opportunity to be, to be involved in something that, that has this long a time to develop and, and have the support that we have. So we're really grateful for that. And it's fun to be nearing the end of this next iteration, which is the uh, VRification of Moray, uh, soon to be titled House of Moray and available on the Quest Store and Steam after that. You can definitely get a sense that this project has that kind of, um, that amount of care over time when you start to dig into the world of it and start to see all these various different iterations. I wanna go back to something that Chloe said about the way that it, uh, you, you've changed your working styles due to this kind of, uh, this, this difference in location. And it occurs to me like it almost mirrors in a certain way, the the way the project changed um, in the introduction of this kind of like interactive and kind of like, uh, I guess like uh, digitally located version where you have almost this this kind of game, this interactive game that no longer requires its its kind of uh, original place in space or, or or something along those lines. And I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that element of the project because I think it's a really interesting interesting part to to think about this relationship between uh, audio experience, but then also kind of interactive and, and something edging close to, to game design. Yeah, it was 2021. So we, we did the desktop game release and that was really a way for people to interact with it remotely and kind of like, um, sounds like a detrimental thing to say, or it sounds wrong. Um, but giving some people some freedom to play and almost have like a lava lamp situation. Like, of course, a very complex lava lamp that a lot of thought and work has gone into, which is like why I prefaced um, so much more. First, I've heard that. that analogy, Chloe. But... I love it. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just something like we were so in a time where it's like the live streams and then everyone's trying to go to shows again, but there's still this pandemic happening and closures everywhere. And it, it felt like a good time to think about something that um, was more than just another record or more than um, another live stream. Like how could it become something that could have its own life and with this this iteration the house of more it feels like it's taken that sort of charge up but actually has support you know and we could spend time on it we've spent a lot of time on it um in a way that is a little bit more um 
I mean, we've really been working on it for a year at this point. Yeah, the VR iteration. So, um, yeah. uh, what you just touched on, Chloe, uh, makes me want to get into a little bit of my game engine evangelism here. Um, we, the project seems so many different expressions. Like it started as a live visual backdrop for a performance that, that Chloe had slated. Um, and well, okay, sorry. We did a few live performance versions of it. Okay, first. And a couple of those were kind of like uh, early, early previews. And then we, we did the full fledged performance at Mutech. So that was projected visuals. Um, we used a point cloud, uh, we used a depth camera to produce some point, point cloud images uh, of ourselves throughout the performance. So there's that kind of like experimentation happening with new hardware and new technologies. So that's all geared towards live performance. Uh, then, as Chloe mentioned, we did have the opportunity to sort of do an early VR rendition of it, but that was site-specific for a gallery, right? And galleries present uh, issues with through rate, you know, like how many devices you actually have on hand, how many people can actually see it. Um, the real benefit of virtualizing content is anyone can access well have to have hardware right so there is that barrier um but once once we reach some uh, critical mass where these devices become as common as smartphones the whole idea is that anyone can access and experience this type of content from anywhere um and then one other formulation of the project that we did was a purely desktop sort of the lava lamp version as chloe put it uh where it was a music visualizer. It was like a visual album. So there's four different versions of the project with four different types of audiences and locations in mind. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is this is what's special about where we've arrived at as digital creators, using Unity, using Unreal Engine, piping in audio, piping in MIDI, you can create a realm, you can, you can world build, and then there's so many different output potentials for that. You can use them for live visuals, you can create a VR experience and people can experience that content intimately from home, or you can create it for a desktop computer or a laptop or a smartphone. So that's unique about how we go about creating the work we do, I would say, is that uh, all those different output potentials well, and to add to that and maybe loop back to your original question, one of the things about these past iterations is they were all audio dependent, the lighting itself. And so if there was no audio, what you would see would be a very dark room. And so all of the colors are based on frequency response and that shifts. So any changes that I make affect the environment and any changes that Matt makes affects the environment as well. But like it's they're interdependent. And with the way that the new VR is built, it's it sort of actually separates those modalities a little bit, but they're 
the sounds become guiding principles to how you want to move or pause in a space and it, it sort of shifts the role. We had to make a lot of adjustments to how we were working based on hardware limitations, like what Matt was just saying, we're building for the quest as a main target. Um, and when you start with a benchmark that's that's the Android SDK and essentially a smartphone you're wearing on your face, you're going to have to approach a project a lot differently. And this is kind of also looping back into that point that Matt just made around digital creators and digital creation is you're always balancing these variables when working with audio programming or working in a game engine or any of this, which is like what kind of control over outcome or specs you have and what you're aiming at and then what from this seemingly endless field of abstraction you could pull from you actually are going to prioritize because you can't do everything it'll it'll crash you know but you also can do anything so it's this like constant artistic balancing act of like okay if i'm making this aesthetic choice what's that trickle down and so you have to interrogate your choices all the time which is also a little bit hard <laughs> you know and i'm sorry about the lava lamp thing i, I more meant like a, a kind of a comfort you know like some sort of this thing that's like comforting and you can lose yourself in you know like the warm glow amidst all of these uncontrollable variables. I meant it, Chloe. I like that analogy. Lava lamps are transfixing. I think our project's a little bit more dense and complex than a lava lamp, but there's a reason. Me too. Me too. I just, I. Just don't compare it to an iTunes visualizer. <laughs> you know, it's like... No, it's not a screensaver. Yeah. No. Um... <laughs> I want to go something that you said there. Actually, there maybe I can relate to two things from uh, from Matt and also from you, Chloe. This discussion of um, this idea of the digital as this kind of space of of like limitless abstraction and the necessity to kind of be able to select and almost pre-select um, the variables and the structures that you're going to use because of that that really unbound space. It requires a, a certain amount of aesthetic discipline, perhaps, or something like that. And I want to tie that back to what what you said matt about about world building um because both both of you have this experience i think of working in site specific kind of installation worlds and and with with game engines it feels like this the a new kind of space space opens up and and the term world building becomes becomes relevant uh, or or kind of like uh, aesthetically salient and so i wanted to ask kind of yeah a little bit about what that term means for you and your in your practices and and how you think about that kind of transformation well in a game engine, you're given a blank 3D canvas and you have an origin, which is the zero, zero, zero point in the middle of the space. And you essentially have an abyss to work within. Uh, we've had our project described as existing within a void-like realm. That is to say, there's a black backdrop. We didn't choose to use a skybox. Um, we didn't imbue it with any sense of realism. 
And so from there, yeah, you envision and you build, you, you build out your world and that's um, a composition of uh, spatial design and sound design and uh, you're bringing together all different types of assets and people, you know, people who experience the content aren't thinking about everything's comprised of 3D meshes. You know, they might not even know what that term means, but it's all 3D models. It's all composed of uh, polygons and triangles. Um, so you, you're just able to bring in every imaginable digital asset and animate it in real time, make it responsive in real time. So it is kind of this zenith of uh, digital creation, digital potential. And we started from a really distilled place with it, I think just due to the nature of uh, moray patterns, ones that we were referencing, ones that we were discovering. And, um, and so I think, I think we just had kind of a spare sort of minimalist aesthetic uh, in mind from the get-go. And I think that's been a nice guiding principle for us. It's kept us in the realm of abstraction. It's kept us in the realm of simplicity. And I think it's been a boon for translating into Oculus Quest because it's uh, an untethered headset where all the computation is done on the device itself, right? As Chloe mentioned, it's basically a smartphone attached to your face. Um, so it's good that our project is uh, is simple in certain ways because uh, that means it performs well on that particular device. Chloe, any thoughts on things uh, sonically or otherwise? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two points and I'm gonna loop back around to my own practice in a second. Um, but we, we actually tried a very sort of max, maximum, we actually tried a maximalist version of this, um, kind of the offset of this new iteration of the project. When we heard that like, hey, everyone get started. We are like, what if we like made this a actual kind of house, like very literal, um and it was this huge like expanse and i i wasn't it wasn't performing well for the medium and i also wasn't so interested like in seeing this sort of world building that was still very very abstract and surreal i wasn't interested in how that kind of recreated this um kind of mansion like space and the problematics of how wealth is held and gotten in North America and upholding those types of spaces as some sort of alternative, you know, and it, it didn't feel right. Like it still felt like this other, it was referencing this other thing that is not not an alternative, you know, it's something that exists. It's something that is entrenched in a lot of lived experience and like then needs to be addressed. 
and this project has happened for so long throughout all of this lived experience and has been in some sense um, a little bit of a relief from it. Like when we were originally building the project from Mutech, there was like smoke bombs going outside of my apartment while we were working on stuff. Um, and we'd been going to protests, but there was one that we had to do deadlines and it ended up outside of my apartment and we were both there. And there's there was like literal neo-Nazis running around the street. And so it, it, it was scary. You know, but it's there's only so much that one can do, and you also need to make time for care. And so that kind of these narratives have always like found their way in, and it's really felt to me personally as like a mode of kind of having a space to just articulate in an abstract way that's of course pulling from my own complex lived experiences but like doesn't need to have a reason and is very like focused on something creating something of beauty and that might also integrate horror or unsettling sounds or these other um, uncomfortable feelings, but that's what complexity is. And it's like so abstract that it doesn't need to be explained or held within those individuated things, but can be a dream space. And like the dream space that's been a part of building this like world together has been so important to me. And that was, I think, a large part of our mutual decision to like move away from like the realism. I had a moment of like, ah, it's too real, <laughs> you know, like a total, like um, a moment. And now it's this like total, it's a thoughtful space. That's not, I, I don't, I hesitate to use a word like escapism because I think that's also not true to its intention um and kind of passes the buck but more so like a generative um site of like self i don't know guided like not meditation but it, it, it's a thoughtful space yeah you know and that's that's the beauty of being able to actually build something that's not just a replica yeah. Yeah, you, um, you made a couple points there, Chloe, and it, it was probably clear, but I want to describe a little more uh, this sort of tangent that we went on in trying to create some more realistic architecture. And it had us joking at a point like this is like the Moray Mansion, you know, it like it had an architecture that evoked, you know, scenes from 2001 Space Odyssey. It was like. You know, you could say it was, uh, you could reference any number of uh, sort of cinematic reference points. But, um, and it, it did kind of evoke this opulence that made both Chloe and I uncomfortable. And then on the other hand, it's like, this is a intangible workspace. And one of its great affordances is you can construct marvels within it that you could never have for yourself with uh, limited resources, right? So there's, 
there's a uh, there's cause to to and justifications for those types of explorations, but as Chloe implied, it was definitely um, burdened by the connotations of, of wealth and opulence. And I think we just, we really did want to make something that dwelled on abstraction and was not perceived as literal. And um, I guess I'm just, uh, I'm still glad we, we did that little uh, experiment, right? That was uh, uh, grateful. Grateful that we had the, the time to, to kind of go on that tangent, realize that it wasn't the right direction we wanted to head in. And um, I think that this process-oriented project and having support to take that time, um, those errors or those sort of investigations where you realize it's not sitting right are actually a reaffirmation of what you're doing. You know, they're not mistakes. You know, like nothing was like technically wrong with the other realm. It just didn't feel right. And I think that now what we have is more abstract, less literal, and it actually evokes a marvel in a way that something that's referencing like futurist architecture as well as past architecture but it's all sort of based within a realm of like um what already exists and what this has all been built on is so much less interesting at least to me personally and to be able to actually like take that figure out what isn't sitting and then transform those original thoughts into a surrealist mm -hmm. dream is like so much it feels more fruitful you know yeah and maybe that gets back to the the point about digital creativity is that like you know in, in this first iteration when you're kind of structuring it on kind of uh, like the real world or kind of structures that you've encountered in the real world it's a very natural kind of thing to do but when you realize the kind of the limitless kind of plane that you have in terms of a vr experience it opens up that gap between you know what's given in that kind of experiential world that you you know that complex lived experience that you talked about and then this kind of field of of more limitless potential that that's that and and that that kind of draws you in 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 that creative process it's funny how when i've i've shown this to like my uncle and his husband um in the past weekend and they've never experienced virtual reality um, my uncle is very into public health and that's, he works in public health advocacy. It's very much his world. Um, and we were upstate and it was humid and there was no air conditioning and people would try it on. They'd be like, wow, my body cooled down. I feel like this dark space is like making my body have a response as if I'm cooling down and they were having really visceral physical reactions to it but all mentioned that it was like a dream space and really relatable which is not to say that like we aim to make accessible art and that's the thing but i think for something so abstract and like the sounds that i i personally make are not actually not everyone's down and that's great <laughs> you know it's like it's my practice and the way that i'm making work does consider my audience and does consider um 
you know, that this is my work, you know, I, there is work involved in it. Um, but I'm not, I know my work as an experimental artist is not for everybody. That's why it's experimental. If you can't break, it's not. And to see these people have these visceral responses to it and then try to find ways to like integrate that into their own practices. Like um, my uncle's husband talking from a landscape architecture perspective and my uncle talking from a public health messaging perspective. It's like people are very interested in it, but then it's also accessible. Like there's enough openness in this like kind of quotes void like space that people can find themselves in it. And it's not something that's just put on them. And I really appreciate when a work leaves that type of room for actual participation, you know, and thoughtfulness. Which is so interesting because when you think about, for example, like the history of abstract painting or something like that, often people find this, that to be a very kind of alienating or, or like a space that doesn't feel easily understood. And it's interesting that the abstraction in this project actually has this kind of welcoming kind of component to it. And I wonder if it has something to do with the experiences of movement and the kind of the spatiality of it that makes it precisely this kind of interactive feel that, that that you were talking I about. Wonder how, I wonder how welcoming it really is. You know, I feel like Chloe and I are describing our process as a very warm uh, exchange among artists, friends. Um, but the, the, the design itself is pretty ominous. I would describe it as, as somewhat alien. And I think that people respond to that. You know, they like experiencing something that feels really novel and and just kind of out completely outside the realm of lived experience um and i think uh you know chloe based on some things you were just relaying there's there's a worthy point to be made about you know the contemporary art world really puts pressure on you to to justify uh and contextualize your work you know and describe it and put it in some sort of framework that ties it to uh, world events and culture as we're experiencing it. And I think Chloe and I both feel that pressure and we've, we've had to kind of respond and, and check in with ourselves and be like, this really is, um, we, can, we can imbue it with certain meaning sort of after the fact, but it's been just like an artful explorative process where it's okay to just work with abstract forms and like, pile them into interesting shapes and like arrive at something that for some reason resonates. Um, and I think a lot of the process has been that. And I'm, I'm glad that we've kind of been secure enough to just be like, that's what this is, you know? And like, there are other tangents we can go on and discussion points that have arisen around the work, but, um, and, and those have been, you know, fun and fruitful as well, but it really just comes down to that, you know, just placing the user in, in a space that's unlike anything that they've probably experienced before. Um, before, before we kind of sign off, I just wanted to ask you both some questions about your, your kind of individual practices as well. Um, Chloe, in your album, uh, Improv, They Can Never Burn the Stars, there's a beautiful quote that I, that I wanted to read and, and kind of get your, your take on it in the description. You write, or sorry, the quote says, 
There resides an irrevocable truth, despite what other messages we might get along the way. Inside us, there is love. We are loved. We are full of wonder. With this, consider how we, we may or reorient our spirits and blood memory towards this truth and justice. And this is obviously a, a kind of uh, a very general question, but I wanted to just see if it if it resonated. Um, how do you see the relationship between your kind of sonic practice and these these notions of love and and justice and perhaps maybe something like connection as well? Thank you. I mean, with sound, everything is relational. So sound cannot exist without our atmosphere, like at the most base level, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. What I make depends on the acoustic body that I'm working with, if it's an instrument, you know, that's going to affect the sound. It also depends on the speakers it's outputting from or however that sounds being delivered and then ultimately the space. So there's this kind of complex intertwining of relationships. Then on a technical level, you get down to like what your cables are made of. You know, there's so many different components to sound and what we're hearing across like kind of more of a spiritual connotation, more of a physical connotation, and then a technical kind of I guess what people would maybe perceive as practical um, connotations. And so there's, there's a lot of relationships there. And I really feel like that's why one of the big reasons that sound and sound art and music are something that we connect to so heavily, you know, and um, before we're born, it's the first sense that we have is hearing and those who cannot hear feel sound vibrations in the womb and there's something very like baseline and reactive and responsive within ourselves to sound it is a survival mechanism that's why for people who do hear um it's easier to perceive the directionality of sound behind the head actually because we can't see that way and when we're facing forward towards something um oftentimes we rely on our visual senses more than our hearing so we become less attuned. Um, you always notice you can hear the way the footsteps are going a little bit better. Somebody's behind you. Um, so there's like relationships there kind of on like the basic existent level, but beyond that, um, there's all the relationships that we have. And I was kind of talking earlier about like that complexity of lived experience. And um, the album, is very much something that I was making around, um, I guess, family to some extent. You know, um, I, I I was working um, on a project with my collaborator, DBM Warren, who's a visual artist, um, now based in New Jersey, of Pacific Islander descent um, from Hawaii. Um, or grew up in, in Hawaii, I should say, um, with Simone. And we've talked a lot about like diasporic, the diasporic nature of our identities. Like I'm a free person, I live in New York. I was really separated from my family at an early age um, and, and just playing with glitch and error. And so like a lot of those conversations made their way into the album, which became an installation at Pioneer Works that was recorded um, with the wonderful folks there and 
I was also having these conversations with my uncle, Harlan Pruden, who's just this amazing advocate and researcher um, and public health professional in both Canada and the US, specializes around sexually transmitted bloodborne illness, um, also just a fantastic human. And we've been able to reconnect more in recent years. Um, and so stories that I was learning from him were relating so much to the conversations that DB and I were having artistically. And those conversations were like feeding and feedback looping into each other while I was making this material. And a lot of the original compositions that made their way into this installation um, and the rough draft of it was made while I was in quarantine in Victoria, British Columbia on Coast Salish land. Um, and we were able to have a visit with Harlan there. So like all of this stuff was kind of like onioning and unraveling around the more, the information being taken in and like the thoughts and feelings that were then being made into like artistic expression in preparation for this um, from these sort of discrete and very relational um, sources and like in some ways around family primarily. And um, I've been looking for my dad for a really long time. And after the album went to mastering, um, I, I, I was up with my uncle and then decided to do a Google search when I got back because we talked about my dad and found out that he'd been murdered. Um, so and nobody nobody else in the family really knew so that came up and i was trying to find a way to honor him and kind of honor the complexity of his relationships with all of these people who are also involved in the making of this work you know um as we were finishing the design for the album um that quote by Ruben Quinn really felt like it hit it, you know, and he's, he was talking through that while teaching about um, the star star chart and how that relates to the spirit language, the spirit, the star chart and how that relates to the spirit markers, which are the sort of more written form of language and law um, for Cree people. That's where that quote and that sentiment comes from. You know, it's funny, I included it and I never truly expected to talk about it, you know, because it is, it's very personal. And I think this album is actually the most personal work that I've ever really made. I tend to like put so many layers of abstraction into things and how I talk about them that you'd never actually know anything. Um, but this one has become kind of a good friend or close confidant in that way. Um, so yeah, there was a lot going on in the process of making the album. And I think actually it provided a really beautiful space to process through that, you know? And um, I feel really grateful to its container, if that makes sense. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It, it almost, and you get this sense when you kind of go through your work that there's a sense that, you know, you're using sound as a way to explore relationships. And that's, that's kind of the primary sense in which the sounds emerge is from that, 
that nexus of, of relationships that are clearly given a lot of care consideration. So, well, it's also because I do work with psychoacoustics a lot, which is all about relations of hurts and hearing and everything. Um, a lot of times going into a composition, I, I just start playing with things that sound interesting together and it might become like very dense stack actually. And then I start to kind of see what original instigators of those conversations actually don't need to be present at that time. You know, um, I guess people would describe that as arrangement, um, but more so in real time while building an instrument, finding out what components of the conversation um, were reference and what are to be heard, mm -hmm. you know, but every that doesn't set up a hierarchy of importance because they're actually like all those parts are part of how it's made, you know, um, it's not about like a good or a bad sound or sometimes it is, um, but like, it's more like, well, what, what actually is, how can I say this thing in the least amount of words, yeah. which is, as you can hear from this interview, I'm not always the best with in real time. It's been great to listen. I feel like I'd be amiss if I didn't talk about church and and that project for you, Matthew, and kind of what what it is, because it's it's such a fascinating kind of idea, and it's been cool to kind of try and dig in and see the ways that this idea of, has taken off. So I, I was wondering if you give a little bit of backstory on that project, and maybe also a little bit of the history of the building and and how you got involved. Thanks. Um, so church is, in a way, the center of my practice, the center of my universe. It's been the uh, the vessel through which I've met all the artists, friends, and collaborators that I have over the past 12 years and counting in Portland. Uh, many, many events preceded that, but when I found and was able to begin to inhabit this humble uh, creative space and uh, allow it to develop and evolve, for a lengthy period, uh, that's been that's been the container through which all all possibilities have arisen. Um, without going into too much detail, it's a situation where I'm able to live and work with uh, considerably low overhead, host events, um, have a place of refuge, uh, open that place of refuge up to others, and watch a community sort of develop and thrive through multiple phases. Um, practically speaking, uh, I discovered church on Craigslist, uh, just searching for an artist studio, essentially. Not a house, not an apartment, someplace where events could be hosted and uh, someplace somewhat spacious. And I think a lot of, uh, People have, not everybody, but some have this aspiration to, uh, to inhabit uh, a space that had a previous use case and, you know, uh, imbue it with a whole new sense of priorities. And uh, I think when I was looking for this space in particular, I had in mind, you know, some sort of like concrete industrial and or warehousey like uh, accommodation. 
Um, but I saw this ad that just simply read church for rent. Uh, the price advertised at the time was $900. I thought a whole church for $900, you know, that seems, that seems steep, but like doable, you know, um, there were no pictures in the ad. So when I showed up to have a tour, um, I was taken aback because the building is much smaller than you might imagine uh, when thinking about a, a church. And it really is just like a little shotgun shack with some crosses on the front, pretty dis disheveled from the outside. But on the inside, uh, there's these beautiful uh, stained glass windows that are just uh, sort of a seafoam green and the building kind of uh, is illuminated from within uh, throughout the day with the sun streaming in these windows. So the real, uh, the sense of this is a special place uh, really hits you when you enter it. Um, I was able to negotiate terms with the owner of the building, who is not particularly devout, but is, uh, you know, had rented it as a church over the years and um, to varying degrees of success in terms of the congregations would either thrive and outgrow this small space or they, you know, couldn't, couldn't afford uh, Month, monthly rent. Um, so it was a neat, unique opportunity and I never in my wildest dreams thought that it would last more than a year, honestly. So crossing the five-year threshold and the 10-year threshold, it was just, you know, to my amazement every time. Um, what has it meant? It, uh, it kind of uh, channeled into interests and sort of internal monologues that I was already having about the evolution of spirituality uh, in modern times. Uh, we've obviously witnessed waning religiosity for uh, a few decades now and perhaps culminating um, in the present moment. And so what, what happens in the absence of that? has been a big sort of central question to the whole trajectory of the types of events that are hosted here and the types of conversations that the art uh, is meant to sort of prompt. But I think it comes down to this, this idea that, uh, and, and central to my, my practice is this um, answering to this question of, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to have a spiritual dimension to one's existence um, at this stage in the game? <laughs> the arc, the, the, the grand arc of uh, humanity and, and, and everything that's sort of bundled into that, where we seem to be exiting this phase where religion was really instructive and central to, uh, to how we operate as humans. And yet there's this yearning to still want to experience and connect with uh, some sense of the numinous or, uh, you know, experience transcendence that religion has really excelled at over the years, um, over many years. And at one point or other, I realized that churches, church architecture, uh, these sort of arts of liturgy and the, um, uh, the various uh, 
you know, uh, accoutrement around a church, uh, you know, the, the various uh, artifacts. Um, we're all made by humans, right? Um, maybe Jesus was uh, the most famous performance artist of all time. So it can all be kind of framed in terms of human creativity. And I feel like what happens in experimental music and art culture is somewhat of a continuation of that. I feel like it doesn't always go acknowledged, but that's something that is a motivating factor in the work that gets created by artists, um, not in all cases, but we're interested in engaging with that sort of ineffable realm and communing uh, in ways that people have at churches um, in the past and establishing a sense of community um, and, uh, and disengaging through sound and through oration and finding instruction through conversation and oration. So that's what the church has been. That's what I feel like it, that's what I hope it is, is has meant um, to participants and anyone who's kind of experienced, uh, performed and or been an audience member at the space. Um, and it informs the, the art that I make, not in all cases, but um, I feel like Moray is a good example of, uh, of an attempt to sort of spiritualize in a sense, like art experience and create something that, um, that, that puts people in touch with those, those aspects that are kind of intangible. Um, yeah, it, it, I'm really glad that you gave that, uh, that specific thread as the answer, because one of the things I was really struck by, and I encourage people who are listening to this to go to the website and read the historical background behind the building and kind of the, the history that it has in terms of being a communal space and rallying the religious community uh, in, in its times of transition and stuff like that. And I was really struck by the citation that's at the end, which says, man has no dearer right than the privilege of worshiping God in his own way. And when I read that, I was like, I don't think that there's any irony here. Like, I don't think that that statement is meant to be ironic. And I think you really touched on why it is uh, that there's something about this kind of congregating. There's something about this kind of communal uh, engagement with the aesthetic. I almost want to say like, it's like, you know, it's like after God, there's world building or something like that to tie it back to our kind of previous conversations, you know, is that like, there's this kind of uh, turning back to the conditions almost of God and it's and the which as I think you so eloquently put are maybe the creative powers of of humanity in, in some capacity yeah thanks for um thanks for uh, listening to so well throughout and, and having great points to make in response um yeah Chloe I don't know if, if I, I sense I <laughs> I'm like, I just want to talk about the mirror tunnel. Um, <laughs> so like everything Matt said, yes. And uh, um, that church specifically was, I guess you're going to put some stuff on the website, but it was a synagogue that was then sold to um, 
the Black church in 52, which um, given the background of um, Oregon's redlining laws that were in effect at that time, um, if you were a person of color, um, it was written into the state constitution until I think it was like 2006 or something. Don't quote me on that date, but very recently um, that if you were a person of color in Oregon, you could be taken um, out to a square every year and flogged for own, owning property. And so redlining in Oregon was really not good. Um, and so even kind of looking at that site as this alternative that was um, hosting people who were not, were otherwise denied their humanity um, during these times is actually really uh, something to add in there and great, but there's, there's these amazing installations that Matt's been working on over the past like 12 years um, that kind of come to live. You know, every Christmas does like a nativity, um, but it's, it's really a huge like augmented reality VR um, endeavor, very abstract. Um, the mirror tunnel does exist. It's like walking through an amazing kaleidoscope. I hope you don't like that one as much as Lava Lamp. <laughs> You know, and that's like what your sort of point of entry is, is like you walk through into an alternate dimension, this like space, which is everything Matt just said it was and more, you know, and people perform there. There's poetry readings, talks, lectures, um, also cats sometimes hang out there. Um, we might just be working on something in there sometimes. Um, I know I've been lucky enough to play there before as well. And there's a documentary that was Matt was a part of making. Y'all did that like 10 years ago, right? So we, we filmed <laughs> and have uh, partially edited a documentary about repurposed churches. We're getting on tangents here, but I'm happy to take them. Um, uh, yeah, what Chloe said about the, the full history of the space is really important actually and, and informs the uh, the magnitude of this building, which I hope to see preserved and, and never destroyed, you know, for the sake of making three generic condos. Um, but it did start as a synagogue. So there have been Jews, Christians, and artists who have inhabited this space over the years. And each of those categories of humans, you know, have been persecuted in their own ways, you know, are are pushed to the margin in, in their own ways, some, some very obvious and some a little more subtle. But um, the, the quote that you mentioned, Matthew, is, uh, is from the rabbis of the synagogue uh, back around 1952, as Chloe said. Uh, when they had outgrown the space, they'd identified a new building that they'd like to move to, and they put this building on the market. And the neighborhood was predominantly white at the time, and they didn't want to see a black church move in. And in fact, they petitioned the city. They put pressure on the real estate agent to, you know, don't sell to this black church. Uh, and that quote is pulled from this amazingly well-penned letter from the rabbis written to the real estate agent, uh, sticking up for uh, virtues common decency and principles that would have been very progressive in 1952. And so they wound up selling to the, to the black church um, anyways, as that, as that was their wish. 
And then for decades, it was a home to various uh, Christian congregations. And so that's always a bit of history that um, I'm eager to share uh, because it's important. It's kind of incredible. Um, and though that letter has been such a point of inspiration for me, you know, it continues to be a point of inspiration. It's like they did something radical. Um, and there is this artifact that we have. And um, what might I do ultimately that could feel uh, as radical and as important as um, the stand that they took? I'm not sure I've done that yet, you know, but I do know I've offered the space to the community and it's been very generative and I'm very proud and grateful for that. But uh, I just wanted to kind of like, I mean, you know, happily take any other questions about this, but, uh, you know, to veer towards something a little more practical, uh, back on the subject of the art that Chloe and I make, for example, and the virtualization of our practice, the mirror tunnel that Chloe mentioned is a large structure uh, that is built of uh, lumber and glass and um, LED lights and metal. And what I learned in making large-scale installation art over the years is it takes monetary resources, it takes person power, it uh, leaves a dis disastrous wake of uh, cumbersome material that you must then decide, do we dispose of this or do we store it? You know, what's its next destination? And so that was a huge motivator for me getting into virtual reality is this kind of realization, wow, you can produce the same type of, uh, you know, the same sense of physicality and place a user right in the middle of, of those sounds and architecture and not have to deal with all those aforementioned uh, burdens, um, which are of course joyful, right? It's great to bring people together, work on a big project, but there's a burdensome aspect to it and there's just sheer resources that you come up against. So that I think is, is one of the best things about digital art nowadays is this possibility uh, exists where we can, we can move mountains in software uh, with little twitches and movements of the fingers, and it can be incredibly lightweight. My name is Matthew Raymond, and welcome to the first edition of Mutech Dialogues. This podcast miniseries aims to explore the conceptual arcs and creative rhythms that connect the diverse musicians, artists, and practitioners that make up the festival this year. For this episode, I sat down with Kieran Bumber and Nancy Lee to discuss their recent collaborative exhibition, Union. This multimedia work makes use of immersive installation, film, and sculpture to depict a dystopian but familiar world of lost intimacy and ecological disaster. Users are invited to engage with Gaia, a social media monolith which controls the totalizing cyber world and profits off the sale of experiences and memory. In response to this loss of the social, as an artwork, Union posits a deep sense of intergenerational memory that has the power to produce new rituals of connection. It was a fascinating and far-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to begin by kind of just exploring your 2021 collaborative exhibition union. So uh, this was kind of an experiment in, in full-fledged sci-fi world building. And I thought maybe we could just kind of begin by exploring the structure and kind of the parameters of this world. Um, I was really fascinated by the kind of the way that you described the three distinct levels. Yeah, so um, 
with the, the dystopic, you know, world, um, that is a representation of the current world that we already live in, the world in the flesh that we live in. And with a dystopian world in a union, um, people are no longer able to uh, touch each other. People live um, indoors because of environmental degradation and air pollution. So this dystopian world kind of exists uh, within year 3000. And in year 3000, people have lost all um, access to digitize archives from, you know, worldwide uh, cyber warfare. So as humans, uh, we no longer know where we come from. Mm. And in this dystopian world, the only way for our humans to access any form of joy or pleasure is through accessing uh, the cyber world, which is known as Gaia. Right. And and in terms of the, this access to to the cyber world, like what what is... Um, what kinds of experiences are are simulated by by the the kind of the infrastructure of, of Gaia? Yeah, so in Gaia, um, you're essentially when you subscribe to Gaia, you are basically telling Gaia that um, your memories can be extracted, um, and Gaia then. Um, extracts everyone's memories, packages them up into experiences and levels. And every time um, you earn what the currency of Gaia is, which is called ARCs, and the way you earn ARCs is through this memory extraction. So we have a portion in uh, the installation of the exhibition where um people actually play what's called the memory game. And uh, it's an interactive inflation where people walk in to zones and uh, a voice of Gaia is just simply asking you questions about your life. And so non-invasively, Gaia is extracting these memories, packages them up, and then resells them back to other people. And there's different levels of memory um, where you would experience even more pleasure and joy. And those levels are based on um, the names of our happy hormones like serotonin, oxytocin, and whatnot. That's fascinating. I, I think that does a good job of kind of describing the, the, the dystopic and then the kind of like simulated social kind of world that, um, that, uh, that Union explores. Is there, and then, and then the third level um, just to give the full kind of picture of of the world that you've created uh, around around union and around the the theme of marriage and, and ritual, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so essentially, in this world, uh, there is a resistance because, uh, as we know, in any sort of dystopic world, there is a resistance that is trying to fight back, and uh, this resistance has a knowledge of. Um, ancestry and the notion of ancestry and cultural memory. And so they, Gaia knows that, has some knowledge of how powerful that is because 
the only memories that they can't extract is your cultural memory, and those get um, triggered through ritualistic performance. And so in this world, the two characters, Nancy and I, we do resist against Gaia, and we do enact this uh, year 3000 um, sci-fi intercultural marriage ceremony which lands us into uh, this union world where our bodies, you see our bodies for the first time um, in a space where we are permeated like with touch and we're touching each other. And that is represented through a sculpture um, that is in the space. That's amazing. Um, I definitely want to go deeper into each of these kind of three layers of the world and explore some of the themes that they that they evoke. But first, I kind of wanted to ask from a from a process side, um, how did you go about giving each of these kind of layers their own distinct feeling um, in terms of, of the design and, and of um, the emotional kind of texture and content? Were there specific kind of methods that you used to come up with that or to to make sure that you evoke that in your in your participants? Yeah, we did. We were very intentional um, in creating very clear um, world. You know, it was part of our world uh, building process. And uh, we worked um, under the mentorship of Pia Massi, um, who was a film mentor of mine. And uh, she kind of gave us some frameworks. You know, we mind mapped, we talked about the senses, we talk, talked about the political and like philosophical um, ideas of each of the worlds. We talked about um, how how each world or how people perceive any of their senses in each of the worlds and how, um, you know, what are the hopes and dreams and what are the fears that people have um, within uh, within each of the worlds. So uh, the world-building process for us for this project actually took a very long time. And uh, we were, yeah, we kind of like wrote down all the different ideas that kind of came to mind and used that uh, to kind of create a very distinct like um, art board, almost a visual and sonic um, mood board for each of the worlds. So we can kind of play with um, the cusp of the world. Because I think, um, you know, when it comes to world building, um, it's, it's about straddling between the cusp of the, of the different worlds and how that transition happens. Mm, so you're saying you spent a fair amount of time focused on the, the various transitions between the worlds and how, and how that kind of make the participants feel? Yeah, the, so the cusp um, and also, well, obviously the, the world itself um, in terms of like, you know, the material quality of the world, you know, like in and the, the color palettes in the world, the sonic quality of the world, you know, like in dystopia, um, it's all these, these like black kind of plasticky kind of um, materials. And it, it, it's true because, you know, in this dystopian future, plastic is the only material we have access to. We don't have organic materials anymore. Um, so thinking about like materiality and thinking about like sonically what that sounds like as well too. And then, you know, building upon like, okay, the cyber world, what kind of color palette, um, what kind of branding would Gaia have? What typography would um, Gaia have? Um, you know, what kind of voice would Gaia have? And then kind of building around that. Um, and same with union as well too. And then once we have the different worlds, and then we started playing with the cusp. So it's like, how do you move from one world to the other? Because it's through um, exploring and traveling through the cusp. Then 
that's where you really know um, you've transitioned from one world to the other and you can really tell the kind of difference uh, within the world. Yeah, and that's really interesting because those transition spaces are where perhaps like the political potentiality lies as well, right? Like it's like, how do we transition from this kind of dystopic Gaia world to the world of union? And, and what does that mean for like, how does that feel to, to step out um, away from the kind of mechanisms of capture that, that kind of outline those first two levels? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think um, with uh with, I, I think like with any kind of like science fiction, um, that's kind of like where that's, I feel like that's kind of where like the interesting kind of like narrative elements kind of lie um, in terms of even like with storytelling. It's like how and why um, are you transitioning from one world to the other? Um, and like what story mechanism, what kind of um, what about the characters is like driving them to transition um, between the world, like what are the antagonistic forces that are forcing them uh, to transition in the world? It's so interesting. I'm glad that you you also brought up in the your previous answer the the ad and the branding of, of Gaia because I thought that was one of the most kind of like immersive and engaging pieces for me was was looking at these light box ads that you did. I was wondering if you could could talk a little bit about those and about the process behind making and conceptualizing them and maybe a little bit about what you were trying to to convey with the with the light box. Uh, one of the light boxes is the uh, arc um it's the it says play and there's like an arc logo in the middle it's a yellow one um and we really want to be you know we kind of looked at all of like like you know all like lotto lottery ticket um slogans and like casino slogans and things like that. Um, to really think like how we can kind of, cause you know, creating a slogan is also really important in, in world building. So on, in that um, light box, um, it says play and it also says play the memory game. So um, for that particular um, light box, um, it's meant to kind of mimic, you know, what you would see in like casino um, advertisements, you know, at bus stops or like uh, subway train stations. And, it's really through the advertisements and the light boxes that we were able to kind of convey the kind of story element of, of union, the union universe. Uh, for the arc symbol, um, we've decided to call the arc symbol or the uh, memory currency arc based on um, the arc protein um, that exists in, within um, our DNA. Um, and there's a whole history about um how the ARC uh, protein um, was like discovered. And essentially it's kind of like a, it was like a viral, um, it was like a virus that kind of um, infected. Um, I think it was the mitochondria. I, I, can't, I can't remember this actually uh, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, it, my head, I think it was the mitochondria. Was, yeah. Okay. Right. It was the mitochondria. <laughs> okay. Um, and it kind of like symbiotically like evolved um, together and essentially, um, what happened? Oh no! Actually, no. It wasn't the mitochondria. The mitochondria was another viral infection. Sorry, I have a biology background. So I'm getting, <laughs> but I'm getting all my facts mixed up. Amazing. Um, but it's, essentially, the art protein um, codes um, for kind of like the recall um, of memory in the human body, and that protein segment actually came through. They theorized that it came through from like a, a viral infection. Um, of like biological cells and it kind of just evolved like symbiotically wow. until now we have this ability to recall uh, memory. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the next one, um, we have a light box that says um, a deeper way um, to connect. 
And, you know, this, this light box kind of symbolizes like kind of like an advertisement to entice um, people to join the Gaia universe. And there's like some super small text at the bottom. Maybe you can see it in the image that we sent you. Um, but it's pretty much talks about this like cyber neurological implant. Um, and it's like a very easy procedure that you can get this cyber neurological implant um, um, kind of implanted in your like spine. And that is kind of like, that's kind of like the computer chip for us to access the cyber world. Like there's no, you know, VR headset, there's no like desktop computer or any kind of external, um, you know, devices. It's essentially just this like one little small chip that becomes implanted um, in your spine, um, sends like electric signals uh, through like your nervous system. And that's how we actually access um, this cyber world Gaia. And the third um, advertisement is advertisement that has the four pillars of enlightenment that um, has the text of like serotonin, uh, dopamine, um, endorphin, and um, oxytocin. So essentially these are the four pillars um, that you can kind of like level up on um, once you're in Gaia. So in order for you to level up, um, you have to gain arcs. So it's kind of like, you know, we were kind of, we were kind of basing the world building of this section, kind of like multi-level marketing um, platforms. We were like taking language um, from that. And then also kind of like, you know, like in recent years, or maybe in recent decades, there has been a lot of, um, uh, I would say, you know, like self-development um, programs that um, maybe are not, you know, are, are kind of exploitative um, financially. Um, essentially, you pay, you pay to kind of level up within this like self-development, um, like pyramid scheme or framework. Um, so we kind of took a lot of, we studied kind of the language that they use for that. And we took a lot of that language and we incorporated into um, the voice of Gaia. But essentially, you know, with a lot of those, you know, if you've gone to any um, like um, MLM, like meeting by accident, um, you know, the kind of tools that they use It's usually by accident, right? You like roll in and you're like, oh my God, um, there's usually tools uh, that they use in terms of like their language. And then also there's like a lot of like self-development kind of like, you know, groups and workshops um, or even kind of in like spirituality, you know, there's a lot of this whole movement on like spiritual bypassing and things like that, where, you know, you, you pay money to become more spiritually enlightened to, you know, to meditation camps, to do these things. Um, so essentially that, 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 um, advertisement, um, light box kind of like addresses like, um, you know, some of those elements of like, uh, the Gaia kind of world building, kind of using spiritual language and talking about, cause a lot of that movement is kind of playing with, you know, our release of our happy, uh, hormones, but also, you know, this kind of is, um, a reflection and then, you know, commentary on like our current, um, relationship to technology as well too, where, we are addicted to social media because it gives us those same happy hormones every time we get a like, every time we get an engagement uh, through our phones. Yeah, and it's interesting that, um, like, what it seems like the function of Gaia in this world is to somehow replace or simulate what's missing from that first level of reality, like in the dystopia, mm -hmm. and it and it does mm -hmm. so in this very kind of transactional way, right? Like down to the 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 decomposition of of happiness, which is you know a felt sense or, or a holistic experience into these kind of like neurological correlates that can then be 
parceled out and like turned into turned into levels and and basically pre-programmed in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's almost like even today too when you subscribe to an app, you know, it might be free, but nothing's free, right? So it's like your data is being collected and bought out by, you know, mass corporations and whatnot. Um, yeah, so the idea is that, yeah, even in our world, you know, all the the cyber world that we inhabit is giving us this pleasure that we may not feel in IRL. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So based on the the background that that you've described of of the process in this, it sounds like this wasn't an influence. But one of the things that I was wondering is whether there was a bit of a, a reflection on on the whole role of cryptocurrency in the in the kind of past five years going on in the conceptualization mm-hmm. of ARC. Because um, because maybe I'll add my own reflection here a little bit, which is that mm-hmm. you know the NFT industry, one of the major kind of like ideological drivers of the value of NFTs, is a kind of capturing of memory, right? And the idea that like you know, you you are able to like own or kind of like commodify or even self-commodify an experience and have like a kind of a badge or a representation of that memory. And so I, I I'm not sure whether that was part of your part of your process, but it's definitely a resonant point for people who've been paying attention to that world. I think for us, like I mean like, you know, I was aware of all of this stuff that was happening. Um and I think that's just that's like the NFT is uh the way it captures memory and the way um data is commodified. That's just like a bigger, you know, that's like one segment of big data, right? Um, And, you know, there's so many other ways that memories are captured kind of within kind of this like uh, internet um, world. And I think we weren't uh, particularly influenced by like crypto specifically, but definitely I see the parallels for anything that kind of exists um, in this like datafication, the commodity the commodification of datafication and yeah. <laughs> within like that particular model. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too. The other thing that I, it made me think of is, is cause there's this narrative in union about the collapse of the nation state and then the, the rise of Gaia as like a kind of pseudo nation or something like that. And with the currency implications of that, like, you know, Facebook looking into Libra as cryptocurrencies. And, and so there's lots of, I think, interesting, mm-hmm. interesting areas there that, that, that lines up. Like, you know, in terms of like, um, uh, just like corporations coming up with their own currency is kind of, you know, like even like Disneyland has like their own currency. Right. So like, I think that's kind of like the first step um, to have like a, like to, for an entity to kind of like create like a different model or take some form of power um, outside of maybe current um, financial regulations. Yeah. That's fascinating. So I wanted to go a little bit deeper into the role of memory in union, because um, obviously this is a key theme, um, and the quest, some of the complexities and, and questions about memory are, are center stage. So, so some critics have kind of seen the rise of social computation and social media as an extension and kind of inflation of the function of memory in our social life. So there's kind of more information being produced, it's collected, it's categorized, it's it's more than kind of any other time in, in human history. And you see, you know, in places like Europe, the question of like the right to be forgotten as expressed, you know, by the European GDPR. And and that's kind of a key battleground in the politics of data. So from this perspective, it's interesting how union emphasizes kind of a forgetting at the outset where the present is defined by a kind of a a radical loss of memory or or a kind of amnesia. And I wanted to ask how you see this this kind of initial forgetting of the union world. Yeah, I think... um a lot of our research and past research has been on um, 
the notion of cultural memory and um, sites of memory and activation of memory, and especially as to Asian people belonging to the diaspora, there is this sense of perhaps forgetting because we don't, we're not part of the home country. Um, and we also realize how technology um, shapes cultural memory as well. Um, so the idea of, um, for instance, uh, when it comes to wedding dresses, how the um, history of a wedding dress is um, perhaps human-made um, and these dresses are now mass-produced. And um, now that notion of what the dress means, normally maybe it would be passed down to different um, different villages, uh, has been lost. And now we see that, you know, people wear these fancy gowns and whatnot. And this is what we call the wedding industrial complex um, for the gram, right? And so the idea of a wedding being a spiritual union in the past or that meaning is now lost. So that is kind of like a forgetting of memory, right? Like that actual deep-rooted spirituality um, of our ritualistic practices. And in this dystopic world, you can see that there is this stripping of memory because of how many years have gone by without us having access to all of this knowledge and um, without this human activation of ritual and belonging. Um, because we really see that, I mean, for myself, right? Like being a part of a community, being part of like an Indian community or Punjabi community where you're together, you're, you're dancing or you're having food together. Those, those moments and those physicalities of, of bodies, emotions and bodies together, that is what activates these memories. And this also forms new memories. Um, because, you know, I believe that each um, generation, no matter how much you try to kind of keep the same lineage of tradition, each generation is never going to be the same. It's just, it's not possible. Um, you know, there's a lot of like gatekeeping and like policing of culture. Um, but I do believe that, you know, we do have agency to create our own culture. And through each activation or movement, through these rituals that we do, we're actually cementing new memories into our bodies and creating new relationships with culture and cultural memory that we can pass on to the next generation. I also want to point out, um, you know, within the Canadian history context, we suffer from a huge amount of am amnesia, right? Um, like through Canadian history, mm -hmm. it's like all yeah, these exactly. things are just being recovered. So amnesia is like a tool uh, to maintain uh, political power. 
And, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, it's like two sides of the same coin, you know, like when you're talking about like, you know, ways to preserve memory through social media and stuff like that, ways to preserve memory through media. Um, It's part of the same coin, you know, by preserving certain things, um, you're also intentionally forgetting other things. And that's, that's with like any kind of like, you know, historiography kind of study, you know, what history gets written and what history gets left out. And I think, you know, we have to think about, you know, the participation in, um, you know, social media in like archiving memories also as a participation as intentional amnesia. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's it's interesting, too, when I listen to both of, uh, of your answers, there's a sense in which there's maybe different modes in which memory is preserved and forgotten or transmitted, right? Like on the one hand, we have this kind of like very... Um, cognitive kind of um, datafied infrastructure for the preservation and or the supposed preservation and transmission of memory, which would be something like social media, which in effect has a kind of amnesic quality to it, even though it purports to be kind of a, a, a way of memorializing. And then on the other hand, we have this, this discussion of ritual, right? And this discussion of cultural lineages and the ways that they transmit and transform kind of across time. And I guess I guess I, I I was thinking a little bit about how in Union, what's emphasized at the beginning is is the volatility of that that first kind of memory, that digital memory, right? In in contrast, maybe with the 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 ancestral memory or the the ritualized memory that that uh, uh, Kieran was just talking about. Yeah, you're, to- yeah. you're totally right. There's different yeah different modes yeah. of it. Like no one can. I mean, I don't know, maybe in the future there'll be a way of like extracting it, but it's like, you know, how can you, how can you extract something through the lived body, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe somewhere down the line there's something that can do that. Yeah. And I, (laughs) I think there's also the idea that memory is like an ever changing thing, right? I think that. The problem with this like digital extraction of memory is that it assumes that memory is stagnant, mm-hmm. right? It kind of like flattens memory into this one-dimensional thing that exists as a stagnant, stagnant moment in time, whereas memory is actually like a living spirit and a living thing that is always evolving and always changing with generations. Right. It's like being kind of re-remembered and retold and, and through that kind of process, adapting, changing, kind of modifying itself. Um, mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, so, so Nancy, in, in the art, artist statement for Union, you write, the story Union tells is set in a distant post-apocalyptic future, precisely because my experience as a Taiwanese non-binary femme in the present feels so constricted that I felt it necessary to abandon the present world entirely. I'm wondering about this kind of gesture of, a, of abandoning the present and, and how you see this in relation to the kind of the question of tradition that we were just talking about. Because on the one hand, there's this, it feels there's, there's a movement of abandonment, um, but then there's also a deep reflection on, on the present uh, in this work and, and on, the, on the question of the past as well. So I was wondering how you see those two things articulated together. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of, you know, with any kind of like speculative fiction or any kind of conception of futurity, um, it's... I guess maybe abandonment is maybe too uh, strong of a word, but, um, you know, you have to have some kind of departure, you know, but it's almost like a departure from the present in a way that you have to abandon 
anything you know of the present in order to um, create a sense or in a, to envision a futurity that kind of exists. Um, because the present moment in, in the society that we currently live in, um, to create something, you know, within that container almost feels wrong and almost feels like it's too restrictive. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's like abandoning something of the present moment. Um, but obviously, you know, it's still the, the concept of the narrative and of the story is still, you know, it's still something we're projecting, um, from the, from the present moment. So, you know, obviously there's still a relationship. Um, but I think, I, you know, with any kind of like futurism and, you know, talks of futurity is, um, the idea that um, we're creating some form of utopia. And, you know, utopia is not like a time or not like a place. Um, utopia is something in action. Um, there's, a, a, there's a writer, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, he, he writes about um, the blues and jazz and how, um, how black folks um, envision kind of like... Uh, utopia within the action of playing jazz music. And, you know, like, I, I really think that's like super poetic um, in the sense that it, you're thinking about utopia as like an action of working towards something, of walking towards something, of singing, of dancing. And, you know, you, you have to enact an action in order for those portals of t towards you, uh, in, in order for a portal to utopia to open. And it's a fleeting thing. You know, as soon as you stop doing something, you kind of settle back um, into this reality. So, you know, I think about, you know, abandoning the present moment as, um, as a way to, uh, to describe um, working in an action um, towards, like, opening a portal to utopia, but as a fleeting thing, because we always still have to return back to the present moment, but using that access to utopia, to that utopia moment for us to reflect on what we can do better and inform what we can do better in the present. Maybe that also gives us a bridge back to our discussion kind of around ritual um, and even the question of the transition between worlds, right? Like when you brought up the, the jazz example, the first uh, thing that immediately came to my mind was electronic music and and the whole rave experience as a... As, a, as another one of those kind of like time outside of time kind of mm -hmm. places, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that like also like the embodiment element of that, right? Like it, it, it's, what is it? it's kind of like a way of inhabiting um, this momentary utopia, which, which again reminds me of the, of, of the whole union ritual in, in the piece. Yeah, totally. The, like the rave, the underground rave scene is a very good example of like a fleeting moment of utopia. Yeah, and this collective experience, too, like, there's something to be said about, um, you know, co collectively being together and collectively creating a memory um, that makes it even more, more real or more powerful because of the social relationship and interactions in that space. Yeah, definitely. Actually, this is probably a good segue into the theme of embodiment in the work. Um, 
there is a, you know, obviously there's this emphasis on intimacy, embodiment, touch as kind of the activation of this, this kind of ancestral memory and also touch and embodiment as a, as a mode of resistance against the, the forces that seek to commodify social relationships. Um, and I was wondering how, how did you come to learn about this, this power? Are there kind of particular spaces like rave and music or other ones or practices that, that kind of embody this potential for, for both of you? Yeah, I would say for me, one thing that is that I've been exploring in my artwork is very much this uh, the notion of recalling memory or creating new memory within my culture. Um, so for me, um, my primary exploration was was thinking about like, okay, what what ties me to my memory? Like what, uh, what ties me to my culture? What are things that make me feel rooted in my culture? And, uh, you know, we, we talk about like food, we talk about like dancing. Um, and one thing that really struck me was thinking about, um, cultural artifacts and sites of memory. And one of which being, um, textiles. And so I was thinking about specifically like my grandmother's textile that when I, her shawl, when I wear it, I feel, I feel grounded in my culture. Like there is this kind of like sense of belonging that I, that I get from wearing it. And, um, through that process, I, you know, I, I did a field research in Punjab where I was researching this specific textile called Fulgaris. And these ancestrally were, um, had different shapes and embroidery, um, from each village. And it was passed down from generation to generation. So a mother to a daughter and then passed down to different villages. And, when women are cre- created these fulgaris, you know, these are hand woven or hand embroidered. And so we see there that there's this movement, um, in motion and this touch and feeling and these memories get woven into the textile. And once they move from different villages, um, you see that the different embroideries, the motifs are then, um, then, then change based on um, the melding of two different villages together. And so um, I, I see how touch and movement is so, is so powerful in, um, in shifting and transcending and um, communicating um, memories and creating new memories. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, your discussion there about the 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 garment being passed down it, it it shows again how the kind of the the various structures of of kind of industrial production keep us alienated mm-hmm. from that kind of memory right like i have no idea who created my shirt you know even if i buy buy vintage you know there's clearly a memory locked in this garment but there's no way for me to to kind of access it um which which yeah. d- defines that's another way of thinking about maybe the amnesia that we were talking about before is this mm-hmm. kind of like these like lost wandering objects that have no memory. Absolutely. Yeah. And this particular textile too is, is mass produced now it's machine made, you know, like 
it's rarely um, created by hand. And so now you see that, you know, people wear these textiles, you see them at in pictures on Instagram and everywhere else, and then they're just put away. And so um, the memory that was once imbued on to this object has been lost. And that also shows how, you know, technology through like commodification, mass production and machinery has also shifted um, this amnesia, as you were saying with the garments. Yeah, just to to go a little like to go on this a little bit longer, it's making me think also that like there's a question here of 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 the intimacy of 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 giving in a relationship, you know, that 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 is also not there in in most of the way that objects are circulated around our world. Yeah, absolutely. It's like because it's not relational. I don't know. I just think about like our relationship with food, right? When you grow something. If you would have a different relationship than, you know, just going to the supermarket and just buying something because you've been through the process of, um, you know, feeding this plant and taking care of it. So your relationship, re- yeah, like relationships and relational um, dynamics then also like create new memories. Yeah. And it it shows how like the whole kind of idea that you could simulate or that you could purchase kind of like intimacy or memories is kind of a like a there's there's a certain kind of illusoriness there potentially that like feeds the ideology of something like Gaia. But really what's happening is that the conditions for that have been somehow removed or are made more difficult to find those spaces where where you can actually access that that kind of intimacy. Um, so one of the, uh, just to, to move into the question of, of kind of the formal structure of union, one of the things that really struck me was the vast array of kind of mediums and technical elements. You know, there's sculpture, there's film, there's immersive installation, there's um, composition. And I, I was wondering just from a, from a production side, like, how did you manage the creative process while working across so many mediums? And were you ever concerned about kind of like aesthetic or conceptual fragmentation, like across the production tracks? Was this a challenge or, or did it flow pretty organically through all those various forms? You know, again, um, back to relationships. Um, I don't think that was ever a concern for us. Like we did have a huge team to develop this project. Um, obviously we had like multiple departments, like audio visual departments. We had, um, you know, branding, um, you know, we had like the sculpture, we had like this, digital visual assets and things like that. But I think one of the, one of the things, one of the true kind of like beauty of the project union was like the union of like all of us and our friends. Cause you know, this was a project that we had to do uh, throughout the pandemic, like deep in the pandemic in 2020, 2021. So that world was very different. You know, it was, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't really have, we didn't really have access to kind of social spaces, you know? So the project itself functioned um, as like a social space for all the people that were partaking um, in the production of this project. So, you know, I, I think like the, the working dynamic and the way that, and I think this is like true for all of our projects that Kira and I, um, we kind of do, you know, we, we don't, I don't, like we don't believe that it's worth um, like it's, it's not worth sacrificing your relationship 
for some kind of creative output, you know, that is consumed by somebody else. You know, so a lot of the things and the content and the kind of visual and audio elements um, that were created in this project, we get, we give a lot of agency to our collaborators in making something that makes them uh, feel good. Because as artistic directors um, on on a project, we have the power to reconceptualize our narrative and reconceptualize our story uh, to fit the needs of all the collaborators in the project. Yeah, I would say we're very reflexive in that way. And for us, you know, it's really, of course, we, you know, we are concerned about the product, but at the same time, we find we find more beauty and more learning and um, and whatnot through the process. And I think that is something that we're, that we primarily focus on is, you know, developing and deepening relationships with our current collaborators or, or uh, bringing on new collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to, to think about having to produce something like that during the pandemic and, and yeah, it was insane. Yeah. <laughs> cause it, cause it's also like, you know, if union, especially the dystopic and, and Gaia levels are reflections kind of of our, you know, entrapment by social media, it must've felt pretty real as you were, as you were working on it to be, uh, kind of contained to those channels, the channels that were kind of given in that moment. Absolutely. I think I remember there was a moment where Nancy and I were, I don't know if we were we were rehearsing and I remember thinking like, wow, we're the only people in this room that can be this close to one another. <laughs> that we're allowed to <laughs> yeah. be this close to one another, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. true. We're able to break the two meter and be rule. Intimate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was kind of looking into both your backgrounds, I noticed that you both work across like a range of practices similar to the range of mediums that, that Union employs. And uh, I was wondering whether, you know, with your first project kind of of explicit world building that Union was, has this experience of, of taking world building as, a, as an aesthetic kind of object or ideal, has it impacted the way that you view other domains of, of your work in life? Like, has it, has it had um, the reflections that you had on like what a world is and the details of worlds, has that, has that influenced you at all? Oh, totally. I think I've been world building like for a long time, you know, just maybe not in like a speculative fiction way, but, you know, as like a community organizer, like a cultural producer, as an event producer, as someone that hosts events like raves and someone that runs um, like current feminist electronic art symposium, the goal and the vision is world building through, you know, artistic programming and through kind of space making, right? Like you're trying to make a space and trying to create an artistic program and create certain discourses that can move towards a future that you want to see. I guess a, another kind of um, thing that I was thinking about was, you know, since its appearance kind of last year at, at Richmond Art Gallery, um, the world of Union has kind of had begun to migrate into a web XR experience, which I believe is going to be shown at Mutex Virtual Exhibition. And I wanted to ask, like, about this decision to adapt the project in this way. And maybe just, uh, I'm wondering how designing for physical space is, is different than virtual space and kind of what's exciting to you about this, this kind of web XR format. Um, I think what's really, you know, well, first of all, we don't have to have white gallery walls. 
because <laughs> that was uh, something that um, we we really wanted to immerse people in a space and feel like they're you know you're not in a gallery you're actually inhabiting uh, these worlds and uh, I think what the WebXR experience does is, is it it offers us this um, uh, displacement or this new opportunity to take artwork outside of a gallery space, which in itself has its own histories. And um, yeah, there's a lot there, you know, when you walk into a gallery space. And so it, I don't know, it's almost like it creates a, it's a more neutral space in a sense. And where participants, um, can feel even more immersed because in the gallery space, you get a sense of our characters uh, in the space and the story of Union. And what this WebXR experience does is it offers us um, the participants uh, the notion of actually inhabiting these spaces and interacting with Gaia um, and creating um social interaction in that space. You know, we think the WebEx are, I mean, obviously, the WebXR space, um, or just any kind of XR space, is is a better medium for world building um, than perhaps Mm -hmm. a gallery space. (laughs) Because, you know, the gallery space has a lot of, um, um, you know, it's, 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 it's like, um, has a lot of limitations. (laughs) Yeah, and, and also, you know, there's like physical limitations, you know, whether yeah. that's like, like physics, you know, of like installing things or, you know, institutional limitations uh, within um, a gallery space too, a bureaucratic or institutional limitations of what you can do in the space. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the interesting kind of tensions or, or complexities about, about media art or doing kind of uh, XR art is that on the one hand, it feels like it gives a whole plane of creativity that is um, uh, unbound and compared to certain kind of physical spaces. But on the other hand, you know, if we're thinking about some of the kind of um, the visions of, of, of creativity that are being put forward by people like who are working at meta or in, in the broader kind of like VR metaverse kind of space, there's also something about, I think that union calls us to around the, the physical space and world building in the physical space as well. And, and so there's, there's this kind of complexity, I think, about 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 the status of, of reality and, and virtual reality and those constraints as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, another another so another thing I wanted to, to ask you both about was that it feels that in in kind of the trajectory of your work, there's an exploration of this kind of concept of immersion and of immersive, immersive art. So often foregrounding the relationship between kind of this, this, this viewer and their, their sensory environment. And I wanted to ask if you could just tell me a little bit about how you see this concept of immersion, what, what's really important in, in creating an immersive experience for, for a participant or a viewer. Kira, what's that guy's name? <laughs> we were just talking about this. What's the guy's name that taught that audio workshop? Um, I'm just trying to remember. Like, there's a guy. There's, I'm just trying to get this name right. I don't right. know. There's, yeah, yeah. This guy that taught the audio workshop, and he has this really amazing thing that he says about. At I am um, four. At I am four. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember. What did? He, what was the quote? I can't even remember. 
Oh, he just kind of gave, um, he's an indigenous, um, uh, indigenous, like, uh, sound designer. And then he talked about immersion, um, through the story of, like, how the world was created. And all he said was, like, just close your eyes and, like, I'm going to tell you the story of creation. And that was immersion. Wow. Like, that was virtual reality. Like, just close mm-hmm. your eyes and just let me tell you a sto- the story of like the story of creation and um and uh, and that was like that was his kind of introduction to like we we had a we taught like a VR um workshop together and he was like that is kind of like the most um raw form of like a virtual reality just listening to a story and just imagining like that immersion itself is enough wow that's beautiful just trying to find a name yeah why do we do what we do <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think this is this is one of the places that I was I was kind of thinking uh, that I wanted to go with this question is that it feels in some way that that all art calls us to a kind of immersion, right? And then some of the technical mediums like XR and some of the mixed reality stuff um, that you both work on is like a it's a development of this and is allowing for kind of more tools for for engaging participants and, and really bringing them into a piece of artwork. I just found his name. It's Quinn Brander. Great. Shout out. <laughs> Shout out, Quinn. Sweet. Uh, sorry, your last question. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was just I was just thinking about you know what like what differentiates kind of immersive art from from just art in general, right? And it 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 it, it made me feel a little bit like you know I feel like most art actually calls for for a. Uh, an experience of immersion, especially when it's effective in, in engaging its its participants, mm-hmm. um, and maybe we just well, start, have better tools that are you know creating more and more kind of immersive experiences for for artists to to kind of experiment with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not really. I, I feel like it's like not a people get so tied up with like tools and like technology and all this stuff, and I think that's what's so beautiful. What Quinn Brander. Uh, said about like immersion was so beautiful because it's like you don't need a computer you don't need a VR headset you can just like listen to a story and that itself is immersion um, to kind of remind us like the simplicity of immersion and how we already have access to the tools of immersion without any of this fancy technology stuff and sometimes I think we get too wrapped up and like okay we need like the Oculus Rift S to like be the most immersive thing an 8K video you know 360 video and stuff like that but it's like like you said, you know, like, you know, um, like some art has the ability um, to create immersion even without um, any of these tools. And I think, you know, it, what really creates um, immersion um, through art is its ability to connect with its audience or its viewer. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess maybe that's the difference between good art and bad art. <laughs> you know, ones that you really feel and ones that you just don't, you know? And like everyone yeah, has like, a different mm-hmm. taste and perspective. Yeah, and almost displacing the sense of place and time and, yeah. and creating that immersion. And that is what creates good art. I truly believe any medium can create immersion. And that is not something that is like grasped with um like through like fancy technology because i've definitely experienced vr works where you know i'm like literally in a headset 
Um, but like the work itself was like not immersive for me. You know, like I, I wanted the whole time I was in the VR experience, I wanted to get out. I was thinking about how to get out to the VR experience. So I <laughs> couldn't pay attention to the experience. So yeah, so yeah like I think it's, it's, it's really, it really depends um, on the work itself and what the work is trying to say and how the work kind of connects to someone emotionally or spiritually. Thanks for tuning in to Mutech Dialogues. Don't forget to get your festival tickets at montreal.mutech.org.